0: Grace Marietta, Um, we are, like Benton said, starting a new um, series this morning that we're calling The Table, and um, it's all about just meeting Jesus at the table. And when my husband and I first started dating, we were in college, and we started dating when summer break began, which was a really big mistake on our part. Like, we went to college together, but then we started dating when we lived in separate cities over the summer. So he had to come to my house and meet my parents on our first date to take me out, um, which I can still remember him sitting on the couch, like meeting my family. And then after that, I went to where he lives in Athens to get to spend some time with him and hang out with him. And I know that might be a little weird, like when you first start dating someone to spend so much time with their family, but we were excited to start dating and we lived almost three hours away. So that's just what we had to do. Um, But to reassure you all, we had known each other. We were like really close friends for months. I say that mostly for like the young people in the room that I'm looking at. Like I did not go stay in the family home of a stranger. So like don't go stay with strangers. Don't meet up with strangers. Just don't stranger in general. That's not, it's not the best thing to do. Um, But we had known each other for a while, but just had started dating. And Since we hadn't really hung out outside of our college routine, I didn't really know what to expect when I went to hang out with him in his hometown. But we spent our time just, you know, driving around, seeing where he grew up, running some errands for his mom, meeting all of his friends. And then I started to notice this strange phenomenon. The boy didn't eat. He did not eat. We would start our day and it would get to around lunchtime and I'd be like, Are we going to go get some food? And just that offer was never given to me. And on around the third day, yes, the third day, I started to wonder, like, is this going to work out? Like, I mean, we ate dinner back at home with his mom every night, but during the day, nothing. I was like, why doesn't he eat? Is something wrong with him? Is he perhaps a vampire? Like, so many questions and just concerns that this relationship wasn't going to work. And dating is weird because when you first start dating, you don't want them to see everything about you, especially the not-so-cute stuff. And the hanger I was getting every day and the confusion about why he wasn't eating or offering me food was building up and it was looking not-so-cute. So finally on that third day, I was like, hey, I have to confess something to you. I eat during the day. Like normally two to three meals a day, not just one in the evening. And I was telling him that it would probably be in his best interest if we were going to keep this thing going for him to feed me, or this hanger would continue. We've been married now almost, or not almost, over 10 years, and I still have to remind him to eat during the day. I've heard that's good for your blood sugar. Like I said, we're getting old. You're supposed to like cycle that throughout the day. I don't know, science. And then he also has to deal with me when I get too hangry, Um, but it's crazy, right, how much hunger can affect us. How many of you get hangry when you have to wait too long to eat? Okay, I'm not alone. Thank goodness. How many of you only eat one meal a day like my husband? What? How? Like, I'll come home and I'll be like, have you eaten today? He's like, no, I just forgot. I'm like, you forgot? How did you forget Or maybe you have hungers of a different kind throughout the day. Like, all of us have these things that affect our emotions if we go too long without them. For me, it's also coffee. I have to start my morning with a cup of black, yes, black coffee. It is a must. There's another kind of anger that happens if that doesn't occur. I need creative outlets, I need alone time. You all are probably thinking right now of some things that you need or else some not-so-cute feelings and behaviors Start to show up. But there is another kind of hunger, a hunger to fully understand ourselves, a hunger to know our purpose in life, to find contentment and to find satisfaction, to have all of our needs met and see the needs of our loved ones met. Most of us in this room, I feel like I can confidently say, are going through something really hard and I'm about to get onto one of my soapboxes about adulting because I feel like there has been this lie perpetuated in all of society. There's like, sorry, a feather flowing around. This lie perpetuated in all of society that has caused this mass discontentment and I think we need to start telling the truth to the young people so that it doesn't keep happening to them, but we're told just get through elementary school, just get through middle school, just get through high school, Get into college, go to college, graduate college, get married, get a job, and then the rest of your life. It's just beautiful possibilities where you just get to live simply and happily in your perfect home and all of your needs are met and taken care of because you followed these 20 steps. That does not happen. Because after you've met these really tangible goals that your parents literally hand to you, there's just a void of nothingness just expanding before you. And you have to figure out, how am I going to fill this void? And then all of these things happen to you that cause the void to kind of be unhappy. And I think that we need to start sharing that life isn't that simple. That we all have to walk in the tension of joy and pain, beauty and ashes, discontentment and victory every single day. I'm sure all of you in this room right now are celebrating some really beautiful things, but also contending for some really hard things. And that you have this hunger and thirst in your life for those hard things to be healed so that you can walk in the life that you're dreaming of. We are in the season of Lent, like Benton said, a time where we're preparing our hearts to receive that resurrection life that Jesus offers us through Easter. And today, like I said, we're kicking off a new series that will lead us into Easter, and we're calling it The Table. Last week, Ben led us through a Lenten message where he shared with us some about these lies we believe about what we think will satisfy us, that we can just achieve enough or get enough provision or receive enough approval that all of these hungers that we have in our life will be satisfied, that everything will be taken care of, that we must have more do more and be more and then we will get more that's how life works that's what the exchange is but where does this striving get us tired weary broken hearted still hungry for something else through lent we've been calling everyone to surrender what won't satisfy to give to god the things that we think will satisfy our own hunger and thirst, but ultimately cause us to continue trying to do things in our own strength, or to idolize this romanticized view of our life that we think we're going to fill that void with, only to be left feeling more empty. We must surrender the things that we are trying to use to satisfy our cravings so that we can receive the things we truly need from the only one who can satisfy, Jesus. But this isn't a satisfaction that can be gained through the things of this world. Jesus tells us this in Matthew eleven, twenty-eight through thirty. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Growing up, I've often heard this verse in regard to worry or stress. Like, hey, don't worry about that. Just give all of your burdens to Jesus and he's gonna take care of everything and your life will be easy. Now, I don't believe that is what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying just follow me and everything in your life will be easy. He's saying there is a certain way that you are filling your days, a way of working and striving and controlling that has left you weary and burdened, a yoke of lies that you are taking on that says if you just work harder, if you just make more money, if you just get that one relationship, if you just have all of the things that your friends have, if you just receive the affirmation and approval that you're looking for, then you will have that beauty for ashes and joy for sorrow that you've been looking for but all we actually do is carry around a heavy burden and a lot of weight that Jesus never meant for us to pick up for ourselves. As we work and work and work, we only end up more hungry and more thirsty. Jesus is so kind and compassionate towards us, and he longs, he longs to take up that burden, and he longs to give us all of the hope and healing that we need. So he invites us to a new way of living. And it's not one that's going to make all of your days easy and just make all of your problems solved. He is inviting us to a different kind of work, to take on a different kind of yoke, a kingdom work that will not only quench our thirst, but will give us what we truly need. This work is called sanctification. And what it looks like in our life is simply Jesus inviting him, us, not himself, maybe he does to come and sit with him at the table, to be with him as he looks us in the eyes and says, I see you. I see all of you. I see your pains. I see your hidden insecurities. I see the hidden problems that you're trying to keep from everyone, and I want to offer you something new. If you walk with me, it's not going to always be easy. It'll be hard, and you'll have to walk through some transformation." But if you do this, I am going to exchange that heavy burden of the world for something that fits you better, that is light and easy to carry, and that will fill every hunger and thirst that you have. Throughout this series, we will be doing just that. We'll be sitting at the table with Jesus as we walk through nine meals in the book of Luke, where Jesus sits down with groups of people and shares truths with them learning more about this beautiful invitation that Jesus extends to us to walk in this new way with him. It will require surrender, and it will require sanctification, but it will be a beautiful sanctification that will satisfy us. So today we're going to begin with a meal in Luke chapter 14. We're jumping all the way to chapter 14 as Jesus goes to the home of a Pharisee. So we're going to start with just verse 1. And I was laughing at myself this morning because I was like, I really, like, this table isn't huge, and, you know, you have notes, and I have my water, and I'm like, I really need to bring my Bible up there because, like, you can't preach if you don't have a Bible, right? Like, I need to read Luke chapter 14 out of the Bible. I felt like the Lord was, like, downloading this proverb for me, like, is it better to read the Scripture, the Word, from, like, a book bound by man or from a piece of paper printed in a church office? And I was like... You're right. It is the same, Lord. Thank you for that grace this morning. I don't have to juggle like 20 things. Um, But anyway, I will be reading off of here. I encourage you to get out your Bibles, get out your phones, whichever device you use. Maybe you knew we'd be in Luke 14 and you printed it yourself this morning. I don't know your story and how you're reading the Word, but pull out your Bible and let's look at Luke chapter 14. You can also read it on the screen here. We're going to start in verse 1. Which says, one Sabbath when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Jesus here is making his way to Jerusalem, and on the way, he has a meal at the home of a Pharisee. And it's especially interesting because it's on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was considered in the Jewish faith the day of rest, and it had very strict rules and very strict guidelines that you had to follow. You were not meant to do any work, including healing, unless in the case that someone was about to die. Again, they had very strict guidelines for these things. And the Pharisees were the um, religious leaders in the Jewish faith, and they were known for living by the letter of the law that God gave to Moses. And um, they dedicated their life to studying this law and to holding everyone else around them accountable to that law. And Jesus was their harshest critic. He often called them hypocrites because they cared more about the rules than understanding the heart behind why God decreed certain things for them to do. So it's really interesting that Jesus would be eating with them and it brings about a lot of questions that we don't specifically get answered here. But why was Jesus going to this meal? Was it just convenient? Was he invited or did he invite himself? If he was invited, why did they have malicious reasons? Were they trying to trap like trap him working on the Sabbath? Or were they just curious about this man who'd been walking around teaching, sharing all of these, these things? Or were they just being kind and generous to him on his way to Jerusalem and offering him a meal? We don't really know, but we can observe two things for certain. The first, and we're going to see this all throughout this series that we're doing of the table, is that Jesus ate with Everyone. And I do mean he ate with everyone, with sinners, tax collectors, women, with his disciples, with prostitutes. And today we see him eating with the Jewish religious leaders of the law. The second thing that we see and know for sure is that he was being carefully watched. Again, we don't really know what this means, but we do know, you all don't know, I know, you might know. Maybe you have Luke memorized that this would be the third meal that Jesus would eat with a group of Pharisees on the Sabbath in the book of Luke. And so they already, and on those first two occasions, he healed on the Sabbath. So they already know this pattern that Jesus has. On the Sabbath, he eats with the Pharisees. I feel like he's just doing it to be like, we all know what's gonna happen if I eat with you on the Sabbath, right? Um, he's like, let me show you some things. Let me keep teaching you this message that you're clearly not getting. Um, But because there's this pattern that's happening, we can kind of assume that he was invited into this home and being carefully watched because they think he's going to do something else that they disapprove of on the Sabbath. And they want to see if they can catch him doing it. Over the course of this meal, Jesus will share teachings with the Pharisees that reveal the things they are hungry for and the things that they are trying to fill that hunger with. We will also hopefully learn a little bit about ourselves and how we're trying to do the same things and learn more about the kind of way that Jesus is inviting us to walk in. So we're going to continue Luke chapter 14, and we're going to move to verse 2. We're just going to keep going along the line. We're going to go to verse 6, which says, There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Oh, look, someone who needs to be healed. Um, Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? So Jesus is like, I'm just going to start this combo right up, because we all know where this is going. But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. So Right from the start, Jesus is setting the scene for what kind of meal he's going to have with the Pharisees. It's one where he breaks down their ideas of what it looks like to live for God. He knows that they think it's unlawful for him to heal on the Sabbath, but he also knows that they only follow the law and teach others to follow the law in a way that serves them. He knows that they are blinded by their own self-righteousness, and they can't see that the law is actually a burden to them that they were never meant to carry. They're fueled by this idea that they're meant to earn their salvation through their own works. And he also knows that many of them really like the power and authority that this position of leadership gives them. Whether they realize it or not, all of these things that they're carrying are keeping them from true freedom. And they don't really do that much to spread the love of God to those around them. And Jesus knows the truth that can truly satisfy them. That he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. To free them from the bindings of it. To release them. And he's doing this by demonstrating the truth of the law. The true purpose of the law. Which is to choose vulnerability over power. And compassion over self-righteousness. And love over tradition. Throughout the rest of this meal, Jesus is going to demonstrate to us what it truly looks like to love your enemies. Because he knows that they're closely watching him. He knows that they think it's unlawful for him to do the things that, they've been, that he's been doing. And he knows that they're conspiring against him. But he still chooses to stay and eat a meal with them and extend the freedom and love that he has to offer them through some teachings. And he's going to do this in the form of three parables— which will show us today three truths that he's extending to us. So we're going to keep going in verse 7, which says, when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. So right there he's saying like the people that were also invited to the Pharisee's house, when he noticed how they picked their seats, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, "'Give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, "'Friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted.'" Now, what's interesting about the parables that Jesus shares in this chapter is that they're a lot more straightforward than other parables that Jesus usually shares where there's a lot of deep metaphor and misunderstandings. Here, he's like, hey guys, I just saw y'all fighting for the best seat in the house. And then he kind of does this thing where he's like asking for a friend, you know? He's like, say there's this hypothetical wedding feast, and I have this friend that goes and tries to do the exact same thing that all of you guys just tried to do, this is what's going to happen to him. I mean, my friend, right? He's like showing them, like holding up a mirror to them and showing them the behavior that they just did and trying to warn them if they keep at this, humiliation is going to come. They will be humbled. And while I do think Jesus is probably trying to give them some good life advice about party etiquette, it goes much deeper than that. Yet again, Jesus is trying to show them the things that they're hungry for and how they're trying to fill them with all of the wrong things. He is trying to expose their hearts and sanctify them by showing them their own pride and need for power and approval. I don't know about you, but I find this conviction so relatable. So many times in my life, I have reached for authority and leadership before I was ready for it. I would raise my hand for something, only to have God basically be like, "Hey, no, not you, girl. Sit down." Right? Um, It was usually in the form of like wise, discerning leaders in my life telling me I really wasn't ready for something, or just doors shutting right in my face. And every time this happened, I was usually pretty frustrated. I didn't take it very well, and I would try to do it in my own strength, and it would always go very badly. Um, I had no success. But there is this seat at the table that we all envision for ourselves, the one that will give us everything that we want—leadership, authority, blessings, power, provision, approval, applause—and then we see somebody else get to sit in that seat, and we're, we end up on the other side of the table wondering what we could have been done wrong to not have the seat that we know we're supposed to have. We get burdened with shame that we don't have it, envy that somebody else has it. And then we start to become obsessed with this idol that we've made of this seat that somebody else is sitting in. We begin to manipulate and control and lie and just try to work the system so that we can get the thing that we think we deserve. And we fill ourselves up with so much pride and bitterness that we don't even realize how hungry we are or what we're hungry for. The truth is that there is freedom in the seat that God has prepared specifically for us. So many times when I thought I was ready for a certain seat, God protected me from myself. He protected me from my pride and my inexperience and my undeveloped character. And thankfully, he protected others from me as well. He created a perfect portion for me and expanded my leadership as he prepared me for it. And I'm so thankful for that mercy over my life. And what we don't often see or even try to understand is the story behind the person who was given that seat that you thought you deserved. You don't ask what their story is, what they've walked through with the Lord to prepare them for that moment, the fires that they have been refined in so that they are ready to carry the yoke of that seat. Honestly, we don't do a great job of celebrating one another when other people get things that we think we deserve. We don't have a great culture of celebration. And this was the problem that the Pharisees had. They were so focused on their own self-importance that they couldn't understand that anyone else would have been invited to the table of Jesus. No one else earned it. No one else worked as hard to understand and live by the law than they did. So why should they get to come and sit at this table? The true Messiah would never even have an open table like this. It didn't make any sense to them. They only cared if their needs were met and their accomplishments were acknowledged. They couldn't fathom that God would freely give love to all who are willing to just sit and be with him. So Jesus's first truth for us is this. Demanding our seat will never satisfy like sitting in the seat God has prepared for us. Accepting this invitation requires a lot of faith and a lot of trust. We must trust God that the plans he has for us and the timing he has for us and the work he has for us is better than anything that we could have imagined for ourselves. We must trust in these seasons of preparation where God puts us at the kids' table for our own good as we are refined to grow and surrender and be sanctified in him. Because when we strive and we try to put ourselves in ill-fitting seats, it never works out. Humility always comes, usually in the form of failing or falling. One of my favorite verses is Psalm 16, 5 through 6, which says, Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. When we set aside our pride and accept the place that God has for us, we will find a life more beautiful than we could have ever imagined one where he invites you to a table he has set specifically for you, to give you a beautiful inheritance and a yoke that only you can carry, one that will feel light and easy, and that will have purpose for the kingdom work he has given you to do. This truth is continued in the next parable he teaches, which begins in verse 12 and says, Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors If you do, they may invite you back, and then you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Here we see Jesus examining another aspect of the Pharisee's self-interest. But this time he is speaking directly to the host of the meal. And again, he's acting like this is like a hypothetical situation, but it's actually happening right then. He's like, hey, say you host a lunch or a dinner, kind of like this one. Don't invite all of your friends to it. Oh, wait, they're already all here. Like he is calling them out in real time in his Jesus boldest self. But from a young age, isn't this what we're all conditioned to do? Like none of our parents said, hey, go have a great time at school today. Make friends with people who look and act nothing like you. Go find people who share zero of the same interests as you. You'll definitely connect. Hey, for your birthday this year, don't you want to go out and find a bunch of people that you don't know and who can't invite you to their birthday parties because they probably can't even have birthday parties? And don't you want to send them all of your birthday invitations instead of your friends? No, none of our parents ever said this. In fact, most parents, if if their kid doesn't get invited to the birthday, they're like ready to fight someone. And then... We grow up a little bit, and we are told to be nice and respectful to our teachers. Why? Because of the deep love of Christ inside of us? I mean, I hope that's part of it. But most of the time, it's because they have the power to make sure our days are good or bad, and they have the power over our grades, which determine our future. And then, I don't know if this happened to you all, but growing up in the church especially, you'd always have those adults who'd come up and be like, hey, be nice to all those boys over there, because you just never know. You never know if one of them will be the one. And this was like in middle school, right? And you'll end up married, and all of your dreams will come true, and you'll live happily ever after because marriage solves all of your problems. (laughs) And then you go to get your first job, and they're like, you need to network because the only way you're going to get a job is by who you know. From a young age, we're conditioned that relationship is all about reciprocity. That our value in life, that the good things or bad things in life come from the people we're in relationship with. And we can either feel full or we can feel empty depending on what those relationships are like. Jesus saw this in the hearts of the Pharisees. He saw that they invited others to their table strategically, not compassionately. And he shared this next truth with them, who we know will never satisfy like how we love. Recently, my daughter has been coming home from preschool complaining about another little girl in her class, and she has been saying, quote, she only ever wants to play what she wants to play, and she never wants to play what I want to play. And her emotions about this were so strong that I really felt for her, because I know how hard relationship and friendships could be, and I'm like, she's already experiencing this at four years old. So I told her, If this is so distressing for you, I don't think I use that word to a four-year-old, if this is so upsetting to you, then maybe you should go find another friend to play with. And she said something that really surprised me. She said, but I want to play with her, she's my friend. My four-year-old understood something that I so easily forget. That relationship isn't about always agreeing. It isn't about choosing what's easy. It's not about finding people who are just like you so that you always get to play what you wanna play it's not about getting something equal in return. In fact, Jesus is telling us here that it is exactly the opposite. Jesus is calling us to do things differently than the world does, to not see people around us as a source to meet our own needs, but to set aside our needs for others, which means confronting some hard truths in our heart. Are there certain types of people that we're naturally attracted to because of what they can give us? And I'm not talking about like a leg up at work or like a nice thing. I'm talking about adoration, attention, meeting our needs of, that we have where we feel lonely or rejected, just some of these needs that we're trying to get from other people in relationship. And then when we do find relationship with these people, do we turn them into idols? Do we only want to spend time with them because we're scared of what we're going to lose if we don't? Or are there certain people you avoid talking to or being in relationship with? Because it's hard and it can be uncomfortable. Do you convince yourself that it's someone else's gifting to love those people? I know that I've been guilty of this. At times in my life I've said before, I'm just not called to love this certain type of people group. But what's really true is that I'm not comfortable trying to love that certain type of people group. And Jesus calls us to this different kind of way, this sanctifying work where Jesus tells us that it's actually better and less wearying to our souls to love everyone with open hands than to try to hold tightly to community with clenched fists. None of us should be so wrapped up in our own people that we don't take a second to look around the room and wonder who's not there. We should all be asking ourselves, how would our lives change for the better if we took on a different perspective or invited someone with a different story than ours to the table? Jesus tells us that to live a life like him, we must sacrifice our own comfort to change who is invited. And I'm not talking about invited like it's a temporary charity that you're being kind to this person. I'm talking about invited to true community a community that can demonstrate the sacrificial love of Jesus to everyone. And now let's look at this last invitation we received from Jesus at this meal, continuing in verse 15. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said said to Jesus, "'Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God.'" Jesus replied, "'A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet,' He sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. First said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. (laughs) Another said, I have just bought five oak of yoxen. Yoxen? It's a new animal. Oxen. And I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Through this terrible Jesus is speaking to the elephant in the room that most of the people of Israel were not going to accept him as their savior Jesus is speaking directly to the belief that the Pharisees have that they will not experience the kingdom of God until the resurrection of the dead but Jesus is saying hey hello i'm here right now you don't have to wait until the resurrection of the dead to sit at this feast I'm sitting right in front of you, ready to serve you a banquet that has all of the good things of the kingdom of God. These leaders would never have accepted Jesus as their Messiah, and they would still be waiting for this King that would come to conquer everything and give them more power and more authority. They were not looking for a Savior who would come and tell them to humble themselves and invite the sick and the poor to their birthday parties. They were looking for a Savior who would come and say, Good job, guys. You earned your place here. Come and sit to my right and my left because you worked so hard. I'm going to give you even more power and authority in heaven. So why would they care about coming to a banquet right then that Jesus said was ready for them when they didn't believe they had access to anything until the resurrection? It's so easy to prioritize the things of earth when you don't believe you have access to the things of heaven. Which brings us to our third truth from Jesus. What we fill ourselves with will never satisfy like the feast Jesus has prepared for us. Again, I feel for the Pharisees because I can honestly relate to a lot of their weaknesses. How many times have I told Jesus no with a bunch of excuses? How many times has he come to me and said, hey, just sit down for a second. I have some rest for you. I have some hope for you. I have some healing for you. I have everything that you need right here if you would just stop. And I say no so many times because it's so much easier to say yes to the things that I perceive are right in front of me, the things that are tangible and easy to achieve, the things that I can control. I put more faith in the things that I can produce and that I can control than I put in what the Spirit is trying to sanctify within me. And I forget that the freedom of the kingdom is right in front of me. And it's more real than anything that I can do by my own strength. So in this parable, when the master hears that the initial guest list turns him down, he starts going out. He sends out for those who are so hungry and so thirsty and so desperate that they understand the meaning of the feast. They know their need for it. They know their need for Jesus. They know their need for their life to be different and to change. These were the people that never expected to be invited. But Jesus always invites the uninvited. He creates space to fill every seat for those who will come and sit with him. I believe that most of us in this room have found ourselves feeling in one way or another like both types of guests. We have seasons where we're trying to control everything in our own strength. We're trying to do everything ourselves so that we can see the outcomes of the things we are trying to do in our own strength. And then there are seasons where we're so aware of our deep need for Jesus because we've come to the end of ourself. We feel unworthy and we feel rejected and we feel like, I cannot believe that Jesus would even want me at the banquet that he's throwing. And the incredible thing is that at the table with Jesus, there's good news for all of us. What is so interesting at, about the healing at the beginning of this chapter is that it is for a man with something called dropsy, which is extreme swelling in the body because of gluttony. And one of the main symptoms of dropsy is unquenchable thirst. The body is already swollen, but you are so thirsty, and you drink and you drink and you drink, but you never feel satisfied. This is a metaphor for the Pharisees, filling themselves up with self-righteousness and power and greed, thinking that if they can just follow God's rules well enough, they will find satisfaction. How often is this us, filling ourselves with the things of this world, trying and trying, thinking that it will bring us that rest and peace and comfort and healing and joy that we're so longing for? Today, I want us to respond by asking ourselves a few questions. I want you to just sit and take a second and ask what you're truly hungry for. And I don't mean that relationship or that promotion or that new home on your Pinterest board. I mean, what are you truly hungry for? What is beneath the surface of all those goals and dreams and plans that you have? Is it worthiness? Is it significance? Is it affection? Is it love? And what have you been trying to use to fill those things in your life? Is it working? Do you feel fulfilled today Jesus is extending an invitation for you to sit with him at the table and receive these truths over your life and over your heart that you are worthy that he has prepared a seat specifically for you that no matter how you see yourself or how you feel about yourself you are invited that you can stop You can set down the weight that you've been carrying, that you no longer have to do things in your own strength. You no longer have to do things alone. You don't have to strive for approval and affection and love because you already have it. Um, The band can go ahead and come up. And let's respond today to Jesus's invitation. Let's accept his yoke of satisfying sanctification. The one that calls us to walk in his will for us, so that we can do the kingdom work he has prepared for us. A work that will not only heal our hearts, but satisfy every thirst and hunger that we have. And that will spread that love to those around us. Because the incredible truth about this banquet that he is inviting the Pharisees to, that they said no to, that we need to keep in mind as we head into Easter, is that the Pharisees had Jesus sitting right in front of them, they had access to him but we have access to something that Jesus said it was better for him to go for us to receive. He said, it's better for me to go and die so that you all can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, that you will do greater things than I have done here because I am giving you this helper to be with you. And it's so funny because I hear so many people say often, man, wouldn't things just be different if Jesus was here? What would you do if he was right in front of you, at the table with you? How would you act? How would you change your life if you had him there? And he's telling us that he's left to give us more power and authority to do greater things than he did while he was here. We have access to do all of those things that we imagine we would do if Jesus was sitting right in front of us through the gift of the Holy Spirit. But we don't walk in those things. We just keep making excuses to not show up at the feast and receive the gift that God has given us. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, releasing this resurrection power over um, the whole world is available to us and lives inside each of us. For those of us who have accepted Jesus into our lives, we have the power to bring new life and healing to everyone around us. Will we accept that invitation? Will we extend that invitation to those who are not there and who can never give us anything in return? Will we keep finding excuses, or will we keep finding excuses to wear an ill-fitted, exhausting yoke of this world? Or will we walk in the full resurrection power Christ gave us through his death?